Hello and welcome to this episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast all about the worlds of natural building, permaculture, and regenerative living. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a fantastic interview for you today. So let's jump right on in. So I'm really excited about the interview. Today's guest is a good friend of mine who has recently become a member of the Abundant Edge team. His name is Neil Hegarty, and he's the volunteer coordinator at Atitlan Organics here in Sununa, Guatemala. Now, Neil grew up in Ireland and spent a lot of time around his uncle's dairy farm when he was young. He went on to study agriculture and science and began to learn more about alternative methods of farming during his travels and volunteering on wolf farms. He later went on to get his master's in agriculture and development studies. In this session, we talk about many progressive agricultural techniques such as holistic land management, silvopasture, strip grazing, and more. Neil also shares his experiences from managing volunteers from all over the world and how cattle farming can actually be good for the environment. Now, don't forget to stick around at the end of this episode while I give some exclusive information on new natural building workshops coming up as well. Now, without further introduction, here's Neil. Hey, Neil, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you here. My pleasure, Oliver. Good to be here. Well, let's jump right in. Well, now, we've known each other for a little while, but tell me a little bit about your background growing up in Ireland. Um, yeah, so I grew up in the, I grew up in the countryside in Ireland. Um, I was lucky that my, my uncle ran the family farm, and I, it wasn't, I didn't grow up far from that. Um, it was a dairy farm. But I spent a lot of time on that farm as a kid and young teenager. I learned a lot from my uncle. Um, he was a conventional farmer in that he did, uh, you know, he, um, he did use, uh, he did put chemicals on the field. He spread slurry on the field, which I don't, isn't like an overly sustainable practice, but he was a very good farmer. His attention to detail was excellent. Um, you know, I learned a lot about being around animals, about managing land. Um, and you know, so like, while I don't, uh, not everything about the kind of farm that I was first exposed to was like a hundred percent sustainable or anything like that. It was a really good introduction. Um, you know, I, I went, I went to college and I did a general degree in science, but with, um, with a, with a strong focus on agricultural science. Um, so it wasn't exactly a degree in agricultural science, but it was, it was, you know, damn close. We studied an awful lot of stuff around, um, especially to do with, with productivity, um, soil mineralogy, soil science, all that kind of stuff. I got a pretty good, um, drenching in, let's say from a, from a fairly young age, um, but definitely that degree and what I did in the aftermath were had a, had more of a conventional had more of a conventional focus to them. Um, so my after I finished college, I travelled a little bit. Uh, I woofed on farms and I learned a bit more about different styles of farming. Um, but I and. You know, I made my way in. I eventually went back to Ireland, having having lived in having lived in Australia, New Zealand, Asia, um, and I started working for started working for an NGO, um, and it was mostly around design. The work I was doing was mostly to do with designing and helping to implement um, what we call income generating projects that had to do with uh, that had to do with agriculture. So I got to see, I got, I, I was based in Ireland, but I got to travel and, and see a lot of what, what were referred to as developing countries. Um, and I actually slowly became very disillusioned with that, with that whole work. And it was actually during my time in Guatemala back in 2009, uh, where I was working with a group of coffee exporters, that really things, I guess it was like a slow process where everything I had learned up to that point in my mid-twenties started to click together. And I started to put the pieces together and go, hang on a second, it doesn't make sense, in my opinion, for these people to continue that all of the work they do be focused around 
sending a cash crop back to Europe or the United States so that people there can consume it um, while they feed themselves on, on processed food made in those countries. It didn't make sense to me that a lot of these development workers and do-gooders were leaving these projects, driving out to the highlands in, in big cars, first of all, and then, um, you know, leaving these projects and and going back and doing their shopping in Walmart and actually feeding into the to the exact same system that they were supposedly trying to uh, uh, trying to change. And I, I, I then sort of slowly started to dawn on me that um, that that kind of top dressing or that sort of surface dressing stuff that NGO that a lot of NGOs do is it's just not it's just not cutting it, you know. Um, it took me a long time to to really fully put the pieces together. Um, from there, I went back and did uh, about five years ago now. I went back and uh, I did a master's in in agriculture and development studies. Um, and I came I came back out to Guatemala now three years ago to do my thesis on. I became very interested in, I suppose, throughout all this process. The answers. The more I read, the more I studied, the more I thought about it. Um, the idea of taking responsibility for my own life and my own actions before trying to um, tell anybody else to take control of theirs became very appealing to me. So I really set like a set an intention for myself to just go back to to unlearn a lot of things, uh, to kind of question everything, and to give myself three or four years to really understand um, how to uh, how to how to live more closely with nature and more in a, in a way that was more congruent with what I believed so I came to EMAP to EMAP was one of the places I came to to conduct my thesis uh, the Institute the Instituto Mesoamericano de Permacultura so the, Mer- the Mesoamerican Permaculture Institute and where is that based? That's on that's in San Lucas Tolima, on okay. the other side, and leaving so leaving the district of Solola. Right. Um. So, and I decided to do the I, I said do like an experiential thesis. And uh, the title of my thesis was the relevance of permaculture as applied to smallholder indigenous farmers in Guatemala. Um. Now, how did you actually get started in permaculture before that? I know you've been doing a lot of um sort of alternative, or maybe newer forms of agriculture. Yeah. How did you come into permaculture specifically? I came across permaculture. Uh, I got, uh, do, there's um, there's an organization called the Hollies in West Cork. Uh, they're one of the few permaculture practitioners in, in Ireland. And I had gone out and studied a little bit with them. I'd done courses in in a few different things. They, th- they actually teach a full two-year course in sustainability. But I'd just done a few things. I'd done a cob building course. Uh, I'd done a couple of courses in mushroom propagation. I got on well with the guys, and they had kind of switched me on to permaculture. I didn't actually do my my permaculture design course with them, but they switched me on to it, and that was maybe five or six years ago. I remember the guy who runs it is a German guy, and I was talking to him, and I was sort of explaining. I'd, I'd just been in Latin America, actually, and I was, you know, I was talking about my experience there and this kind of lack of, uh, congruency, as I saw it, between the, the development workers and, and, and sort of their own lifestyles. And, you know, and he said to me, he was very, he's a really, like, impressive character. And he, you know, he just said to me, you know, you're, you're at exactly the same age that I was at when I started having, when I started joining these dots and making these connections. So he was just like, just stick with it. I can't tell you, like, what to do, but just, just keep pulling on the thread. You know, so that's what I did, and I came out to, to Guatemala, uh, like I said, to do the thesis. So I traveled around Guatemala, and I, 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 I talked to a lot of small-scale farmers who were doing, um, who had been capacitated in permaculture. Uh, it led me to EMAP, and I ended up staying there as a volunteer, and eventually they kind of created a position for me for about a year and a half. And really over that time, I, I talked to a lot of small-scale producers, uh, I really went in depth into the principles and their application. Uh, really started to like hone my skills as uh, as a gardener and and as a designer. I was very lucky there. I had some really good teachers who kind of took me under their wing. 
Um, and, you know, for me, from the very start, permaculture was about much more than um, than just a set of techniques to design a sustainable life for yourself. It, it was very much, I saw it as as a calling and kind of as a, as a way of life, you know. Uh, so I really, living there, I felt like I, I got a great chance to really connect to this country and to this culture um, because I was living really in, I was living in rural Guatemala in a, essentially in a small indigenous community. I, and I was very lucky, the, the, especially the local farmers there, they, they taught me a lot. Like a lot of people who are good at what they do, they're happy to, happy to share it, you know. Um, so from there then, uh, I guess I'll just finish. I guess I'll just get you up to date on, on where we are. Yeah, yeah. From there, uh, a job came up in, in Antigua, Guatemala, managing a a piece of property that um, that a group of people had bought with the intention of turning it into a kind of a sustainable farm. Um, it was an interesting project. I stayed there for the for the bones of a year. Um, had like quite a large team of people working for me and. My work there was, I was really focused on, you know, earthworks and key line design. It was like a, a mountainside. Uh, so again, it was a great learning experience. We, we, um, and I, by the end of my year there, I, I felt like I learned an awful lot. It definitely made mistakes, um, but they're not mistakes I'd make again. And yeah, it turned out great. Actually, it was real. It was really affirming to, to manage a project of that size uh you know 10 acre piece of property sloping and to really just like i just applied kind of applied the principles of mo moving slowly building soil slowing down water in any way you could building diversity and you know it was really uh what's the word um it was really affirming to see how uh how those principles if you just follow them even if you're not like hugely experienced can can really transform uh, a landscape you know just those basics alone really just those basics you without know, having to go anything too complicated you know, focus on perennials slow down the water uh work on contour get in animals build soil you know these are the things that you never really regret them you might make small technical mistakes here and there you know the edge the you might bite off more than you can chew with a terrace and end up with a big slope on the other side of it and have to redo it. Um, you know, you might have one or two animals get sick and die because you've worked with goats and not with sheep. But, you know, uh, applying the principles of starting a nursery and just propagating every soil improving plant that you can get your hands on. Nobody ever regrets these things. And that's kind of what I realized. I was, you know, um, I'd worked up slowly to that point, I think, to be able to manage this project, and I felt like it was the right time to take it on. Um, but I really realized, and I say to people all the time now, like, look, if you're intimidated, if it seems like a big property, whatever, 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 I've seen people regret putting their house or a permanent structure in a place that's facing the wrong way or in an area that collects too much water. And these things definitely take time with them. But I've never met anyone who's like, I wish we didn't make all that compost. I wish we hadn't. <laughs> I wish we hadn't propagated all those uh, nitrogen fixing plants. Uh, you know, I those wish, are things that you really can't go you, wrong you, with. You can't go wrong. You know, get in animals, lash down hay and straw under them. You know, add water, turn it over, compost your scraps, compost every organic thing you can get, even if it's just. Even if it's just sitting in a pile until you figure out what to do with it, uh, you know, and and, and 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 so those things you literally can't go wrong with those, and and bit by bit you get more refined at it. You know? um, For sure. Now I know you know a little bit more about uh, some other practices that kind of complement permaculture in more detail. And for those who are less familiar with concepts. Uh, like holistic land management and ideas like silvopasture. Mm -hmm. Could you explain a little bit more about these ideas and how they work? Yes. Do you want me to talk specifically about those techniques or just about the wider? I guess I would say, first of all, like on that. So Let's start with holistic land management. Okay. We've talked a lot about that ourselves. Yeah, I mean, like, so all permaculture really is, is at a, at a basic level. 
Okay, this is what I'm starting to realize with permaculture. At a basic level, it's really just a very good synthesis of a lot of different sustain of a lot of good agricultural um, practices taken from all over the world and kind of put together. Yeah. So, and that's why I think that principle work from the patterns to the details is a very important one that maybe some people overlook. So it's like. If you're getting into permaculture, you don't need to be an expert in silvopasture, holistic land management, um, just rotational grazing, um, market gardening. You don't need to be an expert in any of these things, biointensive farming, um, whatever. Just know that they're there. Know that they're there, understand them, and have confidence in yourself to be able to look up the details of them we're now living in a digital world. It doesn't make sense anymore to to go to college and study all of the different things that could be considered permaculture for four years and try and memorize them because you won't remember them anyway, right? So the reason permaculture education is so kind of, I think, inspiring and effective is that you're really just teaching people how to see things a little differently. You're broadening their perspective and you're giving them like a tool a toolkit yes yeah? so you're saying like so silver specifically silver pasture holistic land management are great tools if you find yourself with like a large reasonably flat piece of land where it's maybe badly eroded it's been really badly managed and you want to get it you want to a make it productive and b heal it yeah and there's you then know, knowing some of the details about these techniques can be well, then you, you go should. look. Then you go look them up. Yeah, yeah. Then holistic land management. Get on Saint Google and get, help him you know, bestow and some knowledge. In a sense, yeah. And like, for example, like holistic land management. I'll get into the details on these things later. But holistic land management is kind of a funny one to me because I heard about it and people were all excited about it and I watched a, a presentation on it, and then I just went. Well, that's just what my uncle always did on the farm. Yeah, all holistic. It's just got a fancy name. Now. Yeah, he call it he call it strip grazing. Yeah. yeah, so you divide up your pasture, your grassland, into into um, small sized uh, enclosures. You leave the cattle there for one day, then you move them to the next one. They sh- they they defecate everywhere. They stomp on the ground. Their hoof prints create seed beds. The grass grows way better after they leave. And it's just mimicking a natural pattern. Yeah, Al, um, Alan Savory stuff is really good on this for anyone who wants the details. But again, understanding the pattern is always more helpful. So essentially, what you would have in the wild is something like a savanna land. A load of buffalo would come in there. They would stay huddled together to have safety in numbers. And any herbivore, if you watch them, they like to stay close together. They don't want to be. They don't care about sightseeing or really too much personal space. They want to be together, reasonably bunched, because it, it gives them a sense of security. And then in the wild, natural predators would just move that group of herbivores onto the next area. And what would always happen, uh, or almost always, is that they would be followed by an omnivore. Yeah. So like in the case in, in the wild, it would be some kind of a bird that like actually cleans the body of the buffalo and looks and hunts for um for different kind of bugs in the in the feces and all that kind of stuff, performs a different action on the land, also defecates on it with a with a higher nitrogen concentration, um, and so you're really just sort of copying that natural pattern. So, for example, Joel Salatin's approach of moving cattle through a land and following them with heirloom chickens works great. Uh, Mark Shepard uh, proposes like having a follow the leader rotational grazing system where Cattle are followed by maybe sheep or goats, followed by hogs, followed by chickens. Um, and essentially what you create, what you try and do is create a symbiosis between the pasture and the animals. So the pasture feeds the animals, the animals feed the pasture. So like understanding the understanding those kinds of symbiosis is that's the real challenge. Yeah. Like Getting really, and that's that's important to people because I think we have an education system that's very focused on people memorizing details rather than people understanding uh, larger patterns and concepts, right? So, you know, 
the symbiosis between a pasture and a herbivore is the same as the symbiosis between a uh, a tree and a flock of birds. You know, one gives habitat, the other uh, lives there, fertilizes, um, eats potentially harmful maggots from around the tree. You know, it's the same as the symbiosis between uh, beans and a corn stalk. What, you know, once you understand these kind of, you know, one puts nitrogen, the other, the other provides a climbing frame. Everything goes to create these closed loop cycles. Yeah. It's not even a closed loop. It's about setting up a system, setting, setting things up so that one, you know, that idea of like every element is supported by, um, uh, by three, or sorry, every element should 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 fulfill at least three functions and be and be supported by th- by other elements. You know? mm-hmm. The more the more positive kind of inter interrelationships that you can create in a system, the stronger that system will be, right? So I guess getting back to holistic land management and rotational grazing, um, the real beauty of these things is that I think the challenge for anyone who doesn't understand this, for, for anyone who's like really trying to figure this out, and, um, is how can we feed ourselves with a you know, with a reliant, with a much strong, higher reliance on, on perennial systems. And by perennial systems, I mean, um, trees and grasses and shrubs that do not need to be replanted. So, you know, a lot of people, a lot of my environmentalist friends drive around Ireland and they, and they say, God, this is terrible. All this cattle farming, all these grasslands, you know, we could be growing, vegetables and this and why is everyone so obsessed with uh meat and dairy and um and it's not that that cattle managing is that 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 um that cattle farming is bad especially if it's grass-fed cattle it can be actually a wonderful thing the problem with it is you know my uncle say part of the subsidy part of the conditions and the subsidies that he got was involved getting a bonus or having the condition of taking out any excess vegetation that wasn't grass, essentially. So any trees, any instead of having live hedgerows that are full of blackberries and briars to divide up... And the, the fields, animals that are attracted and, to them. You know, and the animals that are attracted to them, you get them all out and you replace them with electric fencing. So silvopasture really is just... It's a beautiful... Comp- because if you have if you have your land covered with grass all the time, that is protected soil. It's erosion proof. Um, it's it's it is the most sustainable thing style of farming there is. You're getting big herbivores to turn those inaccessible uh, calories into meat, skins, um, milk, cheese. You know all those things. That, um, no, and where silvopasture comes in is you you combine that with a kind of agroforestry. So instead of dividing up your fields with electric fencing, plant trees and and hedges on contour. Have your property circulated by a large area of of forest to break the wind to provide firewood. Uh, integrate fruit trees and medicinal plants in there. And and that you know increase that the biodiversity me, massively increase the biodiversity. But don't don't throw the baby out with the bathwater like recognize the actually ingenious part of of domesticating cattle because properly managed and fed what their proper diet is which is grass these 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 herbivores can be fantastic allies in in us because how else are we going to feed ourselves there's only so much fruit you can eat there's only so many perennial until they invent perennial versions of all of our staple grains there's only so much we can get for perennials without the help of these of these big animals. You know, for us on the farm, it's goats. There's an awful lot of mountainous terrain here, um, an awful lot of shrubs and bushes and all kinds of leaves, and and we basically feed it all to the goats. You know, they browse and like I say, they're turning that they're turning that inaccessible energy very efficiently into extremely accessible energy for us. Yeah, so um, I talked about that really well when I interviewed him on uh, on his show about how the goats are sort of the cornerstone of all of the operations that go on on the farm. Everything is sort of 
routed through them one way or another. And they transform a lot of products. They help to facilitate a lot of the the work and some of the other functions of the farm. Yep. Um, and that in most cases, there's some sort of animal input that is the cornerstone of the majority of the operations on a sustainable farm operation. I mean, without the animals, we there we wouldn't have a farm up there. Yeah. We would have no chance of growing or producing anything without the animals. Like, you know, slowing down the water and, and terracing the land and build and getting the wetlands and those perennial food forests set up, they look great, they're beautiful, they create lots of habitat for birds, but it's not until you integrate animals into them that you get the real symbiosis. So it's like if you look at that, all of the food forests have have a little house built inside of them with with rotating doors where either where either chickens can range around under the trees or pigs can range under the bigger trees the goats we don't actually let range in there they go walking off the land of the farm but again loads of the stuff loads of the lovely trees that are growing in there we use as cut and carry for the goats and then vice versa all of the animals are on top of a deep bedding system with straw and all of that manure continually goes out um, into the vegetable beds under the trees. So it's like the two are working in 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 very again symbiosis is the word there, you know. Yeah. Um, and goats are fantastic because remember, like, really, in a sense, a kind of rule of thumb is the larger the animal, the easier it is to feed it. The easier it is to feed it without grains. Mm. Very hard to manage have any kind of egg production with chickens without some kind of grain that you've got to get somewhere very easy with a goat or a cow mm-hmm. you know uh especially you know despite the fact that we mostly feed them in industrial agriculture just corns and right but i mean grain. unfortunately we've slipped into this kind of bizarre situation today where um i can i can take terrible quality grains like really awful stuff uh, that are put in these animal concentrates. I can give a small amount of those grains to a chicken that also gets like greens from the garden, also gets, you know, our chickens will eat the leftovers of the goats that we slaughter. Uh, so, you know, it will, get, it will get protein in all kinds of forms. It will get kitchen scraps. It will get all the greens that we, that we cut from the garden that we don't want for ourselves. And it will get like a supplementary dose of, of, grains mostly soya and corn not very sustainably produced but that's what we can get here in guatemala we we take that and and it it gets transformed into eggs or meat which are like very nourishing to us and you have this bizarre situation where now i think you have a lot of people seeming to think that vegetarianism or, or veganism is an appropriate ecological response to the situation we're in and it's not to attack these people, but it's just to make them question that you're really still eating those grains. You're just eating them yourself and probably needing to eat a lot more of them. And this to is get not the same nutrition. To get the same nutritional value. This is not in any way meant to defend um, concentrated feedlots or industrial farming, or other, which other is horrendously inefficient. But, you know, if you can get really the challenge for us at the moment is to get the animals on a diet on as low an input diet as we can you know and it's much easier with the goats than it is say with the chickens sure um so let's change gears just a second because i know you have other functions on the farm uh your main job at atitlan organics right now is managing the volunteers and apprentices that regularly come from all over the world to participate and learn from the success of the farm how have you managed such a wide range of abilities, work ethics, and even languages? Mm-hmm. Um, well, that part of it, that part of it really comes quite easily. Uh, I think to me, of course, there's, there's challenges. Um, it's it's a good exercise in compassion building um, because you realize that everybody who comes here is 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 coming at this from a different place. You get some amazing experienced farmers and uh um you know guys who are guys and girls who are like really good with their hands you know have all these kinds of interesting skills to offer and you get 19 year old 20 year old high school students who are people who are just out of high school 
who've never even seen a show or a, a, a hoe or, or a shovel before. Um, thankfully, most it's very rare that somebody comes here through here that doesn't either speak Spanish or English. So that's a blessing. Um, uh, so that the language one isn't too much of an issue. I I guess my philosophy when it comes to managing people all the time is try and give them try and give them space to do what they're good at. Um, try and find, you know, try and find the things that people gravitate naturally towards that they that they're happy when they're doing. I'm with a volunteer here who's here for like a couple of weeks. Most, you know, people come for a short term volunteer. Yeah, they want to learn, but they also want to, you know, they want to have fun. And like a lot of a lot about a lot of permaculture is like it's making it's about making farming enjoyable and fun again. It is hard work, sure. Like when we. You know, we especially when we're doing earthworks and carrying bags of compost around and all that kind of stuff. It's it's hard work, but it, it's it's generally good fun, you know. Um, and I mean, for me, the the key all the time is that is that um, is being humble. You never know. A lot of people surprise you. You know, a lot of people will come here and you do, and you think, you know, you'll you'll make a judgment just like everybody does. And really, like one of the things that gives me a lot of hope for the future is the amount of 23, 24 year old kids now I'm meeting who are like, who are switched on. They get it. They're politically aware. They're, they're aware of the kind of growing ecological crisis in a way that I never was. Um, they're opting to, instead of going to expensive universities, they're opting to to take a couple of years out to go to come places like this to learn natural building to learn permaculture and um so yeah you know it's um it's it's a good experience um and yeah not i mean not always easy but for the most part it's it's something i enjoy and i always feel you know i feel grateful to anybody who comes to our farm with wanting to put energy into it so you have to respect that yeah you have to and again that like putting aside the thing of wherever this person's at if someone's willing to come and put energy into your land you have to treat that with the respect it deserves and and try and make sure that even if they're only here for a week two weeks whatever that they learn something you know and that there's a real give a sense of give and take yeah, that's really good advice because I know a lot of people who start their own land-based projects, especially in permaculture and others, uh, are usually looking to student or volunteer labor for at least a portion of what they're mm-hmm. trying to accomplish over the years. Um, and I think taking well, into account all I the different say, types of volunteers and, and people who come on and how to interact with them always helps out with that. I mean, a side note on that, I would say that anybody who's really looking to do this don't depend on volunteers. Right. So well, it changes the relationship a lot too. It does. And as great as it is to have volunteers come to your land, you need to, I would urge anybody to design, design is everything, you know, design your system and your lifestyle in a way that you think you can actually manage it. And by that, I mean, don't, don't, don't get goats, pigs, chickens, a food forest, a silvopasture area, and uh, you know, and vegetable beds, and think that you can manage all that with with volunteer labor. Make sure that you and the people you're living with, and maybe the people you're employing, that if you have to go three months without having anybody volunteer on your farm, that you can that you can manage it. Ideally, you know, the nice thing about the farm up here is we all take turns every now and again at manning it on our own or with one other person shad's leaving in a couple of weeks uh and and it's just going to be me and nicolas and and so you know we need to be able to get up at six in the morning and do everything on the farm from start to finish on our own and that's really important and having those redundancies built in are also really important so the fact that he can get away for however many weeks exactly or that one of you you know can respond to either emergencies or vacations whatever it happens to be and your operations don't fall apart. It's really so important volunteer, to build those in. So your volunteer labor essentially then is about doing the bonus extra stuff. It's sure. Like, great, we've got six volunteers coming this week, and we've got a new piece of land that isn't terraced yet and could be really productive if we had 
six people working on it for two weeks and we know we have that so we plan for that so m- the volunteers more do the the additional bonus work right, right? And the stuff that you wouldn't be able to get to yes in in as quick a time if right. you didn't have them that's a good way to look at it now uh, do you see the potential for permaculture to expand in Guatemala over the next five years? And if so, how would that shape out? Right. I mean, I came, I'll go back, I guess, a little bit to my story. I came to Guatemala this second time around because I had been here back in back in 2009. And I really credit like my trip with Guatemala with... Um, with opening my eyes enormously in terms of it was the first place that I really started to see the way the the effect of the global kind of economic system, particularly around food production, has had such a devastating effect on this country. You know, you're you're talking about one of the richest countries in the world in terms of biodiversity, uh, things that it can grow. You know, within an hour from here, I can find coconuts, pineapples, uh, cacao, coffee, radishes, broccoli, cabbage, and everything in between. All you, you know, you have a phenomenal abundance because of the changes in altitude. Um, in a way, Guatemala. You talk about the edge. That's the name of your website. You Guatemala is a great example of the edge effect. You yeah, know, it's like it's the edge between two major oceans. It's the edge between two huge continents. And so it has this like extraordinary um, diversity and richness, not just in agriculture, but in culture. You know? Yeah. You're talking about a country where there's still 23 languages uh, spoken. Indigenous um, Mayan languages. Indigenous Mayan languages. But these people have suffered greatly, I think, for the richness that their country They've has. They've been exploited you know? for generations. And so I think no... I, I, I think permaculture is extremely relevant everywhere in the world, but I think nowhere is it like more promising than here because I think my hope is that the more people that do that come here and learn and do what we're doing here and apply these principles, places very quickly in this climate turn into an oasis. You have rain, you have lots of springs of water, you have an endless number of fruit trees and, and, and medicinal plants and grasses that will take hold to good climate for lots of different types of animals and really applying these principles very, very quickly you get you get a huge turnaround. Um, so, you know, the sky is the limit, I think, in terms of permaculture in Guatemala. It's just attitudes will have to change and they'll have to change from the bottom up. You know, so... The good, you know, we're selective here about about the volunteers we take on and that we tend to cap it at a certain number. Um, but we, um, I will never say no to Guatemala. I'll tell an American student, I'm sorry, we're full, but even if we have 10 volunteers at the farm and even if there's no space to guest house, if somebody from Guatemala calls me and says they want to come, uh, and hang out and work at the farm and learn, uh, I'll never say no. And one of the really gratifying things, I guess, about the last three years is that I've worked with uh, some really bright, switched-on, young Guatemalan guys and girls who've taken this stuff back to the city or the suburbs where they live and started urban gardens and um, and even just have, like, and you never, that's that's the interesting thing about this work, you never really know where it's going. You know, every group of 20 students you have, you have one of them might go back and start a, a, a 10-acre food forest. You know, you just, you just don't know. Um, so that's why also like taking, if you're really serious about it, honoring and respecting the people who come to volunteer here and to learn here is, is absolutely fundamental, you know. Um, so, uh, there's huge, there's huge potential here. The economic system is still in no way in its favor. Um, you know, the political class, the, all the rest of it. I don't think they see it. I don't think they get it yet. I don't think it's their fault that they don't get it. I think they've been indoctrinated into a way of thinking and seeing the world that just isn't really 
uh, really isn't developed enough or advanced enough to deal with the problems that we have. You know, we just listened to the president the other day and he was talking about how he's working hard to get more jobs for Guatemalans. And, you know, those jobs are mine, sweatshops, um, uh, call, mon- centers call centers. And- you know, the, this is not what the country needs. But, uh, you know... It puts a Band-Aid on it for a while and gets them re-elected, right? <laughs> Probably, you know, and that's the level he's coming at. And he, actually, that's, you know, that's the, the big thing I've learned in practicing permaculture is that it does it does really demand you, teach you and demand you to be tolerant. Sure. You know, and so even... I can imagine working with so many different types of people from different backgrounds really helps with that as well. And observing your own journey. You know, that's the thing, you know, because... I'm 35 now. I look back on where I was when I was 25, and I realized, wow, this this guy was an idiot. You know? <laughs> um, and uh, I think and anyone paying attention would look back on certain ports, uh, portions of their life with the same. I would hope critique. so. Yeah. I would hope so. You know, but then it also means that when you meet someone who genuinely looks like an idiot in 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 that moment, it's easier for you not to judge them, not to get. You know, I was very lucky. Um, I had some really good teachers in my life. I had a couple of experiences that switched me on to certain ideas and certain things, none of which I actually get to take credit for. Right? So, um, but anyway, going back to like permaculture as a whole, like in a way, you know, my thesis had had a had a specific focus on the on the indigenous peoples of this of this country. In a way, the rural indigenous people in this country are like almost already the perfect potential permaculture practitioners you know they're already planting loads of food they don't they don't do it brilliantly or sorry some of the times they're brilliant with their hands um they're used to growing planting their own food they're used to walking up the mountains cutting down firewood bringing back down the mountain um, they're used to trying to use and save every every everything that they can. They tend not to be particularly wasteful because there's no room for there's it. There's no yeah. room for it. No, clearly what has happened, and I, I don't want to go into this too much, but a lot of their knowledge systems around farming have been like fairly brutally attacked, and and um, you, you could debate the reasons for why that was all day long. But I mean, you're talking about an area that built. You know, both here and South America, extraordinarily complex, advanced agricultural systems, ways of producing food. Um, the people here were never were no strangers to terracing, to, to complex irrigation systems. Complex irrigation systems. The Chiapas. Of the the Chinampas. Chiapas. Uh, the twenty year rotation of the milpa system going back into forest. All these things that there's ample evidence documenting. All these knowledge systems have been wiped out. Um, in a sense, I think it was done, whether it was intentional or not, it was done with the very much with the um, with the goal of taking people who produced food for themselves and turning them into producers of commodities for us. And really, that process started five hundred years ago, and it hasn't actually stopped. Which was, you know, again, my reason for want. I didn't want to be involved in uh, income generating projects that helped people to keep exporting coffee or chocolate or whatever and earn four dollars a day instead of two dollars a day. That was not that was not going far enough. Um, so I think. Uh, but all all that said, and. Even though all of the, you know, now you see people plant corn on the sides of 50 degree slopes. They don't terrace. They don't do anything to, to prevent erosion. Um, and But, you know, any of these people you talk to, um, almost 80% of them will nod at you and say, ay, yeah, yeah, mi abuelo lo hizo así. Or something like, my grandfather did it like that. Or I've seen that before. And they take to it very quickly. You know, that was the really gratifying thing for me about working in Antigua where I had these guys um, and once I explained to them how to terrace properly, how to hold water in the land, they just got it straight away. Yeah. Okay. They're not that far removed They're from They're very, it. very close to it, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's been a real influx of processed foods, a real encouragement of, of people selling cash crops as opposed to growing food themselves. 
but there's still nobody in rural Guatemala is more than a generation away from a subsistence farmer. So, and with the with the diversity here, and with people's willingness to change, because that's the other thing I see in Guatemala is that you maybe don't have in Europe and the States, is that people here will will grab on to change if when they see good examples of it, you know, because it, it's really not working that well for most people here. Yeah, the way things are. Sure, um, they can see the difference between their lifestyles and others around the world. It's maybe a bit different if you're working for a multinational back in Dublin and you've got a Volvo and you've got a you you know you might have doubts about meaning in your work and you might get frustrated but you know there's nice restaurants another new volvo to work for uh a trip to spain and you know there's right. there's things to keep things that mitigate it yeah, yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> you know so like i i'm cautiously optimistic let's put it sure sure so now what do you think are some of the things that permaculture and the permies community in general can do to help to expand its reach and its appeal especially in communities like this. Yeah. So we're in an interesting situation here because basically both Shad and I came at this thing from a similar position, which was, I don't want to tell anybody what to do until I'm doing it myself. I don't want to tell anybody, I don't want to go into a community and managing a comp- and, 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 and set up a composting system until I'm not producing any organic waste myself. I don't want to go in and talk about uh, rubbish collection and recycling until I can genuinely say that no rubbish is leaving my land. I don't want to talk about nutrition until I'm growing all my own food or getting it or sourcing it sustainably somewhere else. And little by little, we've actually got to that point now here, you know. Um, we're, we're growing an awful lot of our own food. What we can't grow ourselves or we don't have room to grow or the climate to grow, we're, we're getting it more and more in bulk from, from good producers elsewhere. And now, the, so now the goal for us, and we, we, we've both talked about this, is is to help to spread this stuff out. Um, so, for example, we get a lot of volunteers here every month. Usually they work on the farm. But we more or less got to the farm, the farm to the point where it's kind of running itself. So starting next month, we're starting our first pilot project where we're doing a course. We've got eight participants. And the practical work and the the stuff that they do is going to be on the land of local people here. And essentially our idea is to look for funding. Uh, We won't need a huge amount, but look for funding and start redirecting the volunteer labor and the, the kind of, I guess, design experience that me and Shad and a few others here have got and to start directing that volunteer labor onto people's land and just helping them with the because the hard part about this is getting your land set up earthworks on rocky hilly land which is what we have here are tough i wouldn't do it if it was just me uh, i've always done it either with people working for me or volunteers i sure as hell if it was uh, a struggling indigenous farmer probably not even have time to do these things so we want to help people to get their land set up to be able to to produce this kind of abundance that we're seeing in our land and then we want to incorporate them into a wider cooperative yeah so we want to basically share our knowledge and our labor with willing participants that's the other thing that i'm absolutely fundamental on so we're very lucky here to have nicolas who's the who's a local guy he's the manager of the farm he's worked our farm he's worked shad's farm for eight years really this guy's probably one of the best permaculturalists in the world in that he grew up he left school when he was I don't think he went to school at all. Speaks self-taught, very patchy Spanish. Um, but this guy's a genius. He can build a house uh, with natural materials. He can um, he can manage all of the different animals. He's a good butcher. He's a great gardener. Um, he'll build your wall while you're standing there drinking a cup of tea out of um, out of rocks he finds in the street, and it won't fall over. You know. Yeah. Um, you know, this guy's a genius. He gets it. He's really excited about it. Everything he's learned with Shad, he's implemented on his own land, which is why Shad has, has kind of got him back to a four-day work week. So he has three work, three days to work on his own stuff. But with him and, and the contacts he has in the community, you want to slowly start to set up local people to become, to, to essentially permify their land 
and and set up a kind of a centralized co-op for that and i'm really confident that if we can start applying these principles and really just working a model that we know works we can completely regreen this whole valley this valley that we see around us here now where you've got eroded hillsides um poor looking soil in three four years if we can get enough funding and enough volunteers we can actually make a huge impact in this area and hopefully set up because my hope is that if we can do it well enough in this small community and then people who come here we can say look this is what can be done and there's other communities Keisha is a great example of one they did it completely on their own an indigenous community on the way out of Solola on the way down to the coast they've been working there for about 27 years the place is an oasis it's it's in the middle of all these coffee and sugarcane monocultures and it's you know this area maybe 20 acres 20 30 acres of beautiful terraces lush food forests watercress fish snails um abundance of of beans and grains um you know these guys are killing it yeah um and some model example the models are out there and really for me it's just about creating at the moment you talk to permaculture with a skeptic and they'll sit and they'll listen to you and they'll say eh, yeah but you know how are you going to convince anybody to stop growing a cash crop for export uh you know there's no money in that right and so and you know you try and make the case uh, about you know that it's about you know money comes in other forms if, you're, if your food is good and you're not getting sick that's a that's a benefit that you don't necessarily see straight away or you know if you have a good life and you know, all these things but it's hard to get it through to people but really for me the, the the idea is to work small not try and stretch yourself too thin put a number of years into a, a, a piece of land and then a community and then bring people and show them to it and if enough people do that in enough communities on a, on a sort of a small to medium scale, then I think the evidence becomes overwhelming. Yeah. It reaches all, that tipping point. It, I think it reaches a tipping point where I think even the most skeptical capitalist person looks at this valley where we've been doing permaculture work for five years. Even right now, you look at Shad's farm, it's like this green jewel in the middle of an eroded desert. If you can take that and apply it to the entire community, and then it gets compared to like our neighbors in San Marcos or Jaibelito, and people go, there's literally not one sensible argument that can be made to say that this is not a good idea and not worth funding and not worth supporting. So for me, that's the that's the real goal, you know? Yeah, that's fantastic. And especially, like you said, reaching out and including the rest of the community in this as well. If they and want. Of course. And but, but giving them examples to follow rather than just stories and hearsay and yes. stuff like that, because... That speaks so much louder. Um, well, so that was, we could say, almost just a really big introduction for um, for the fact that you're joining on with Abundant Edge as well. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the projects that you've done in the past and how you might be able to help other people in the future with their land-based projects? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, um, like I said, the big the big one for me in 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 Antigua was was. Uh, took place all last year but also with with EMAP we implemented hundreds well I would say dozens of sort of small scale um, gardens and and school gardens done done along the lines of permaculture uh, principles I was very fortunate to to collaborate and work on a project last year um, with an NGO called G22 um, where we set up a, they're architects and natural builders, and we we worked with a small with a family, um, a rural family on the out. Well, I would say, re, yeah, rural, but kind of on the outskirts of Guatemala City, going down towards um, Carretera Salvador, and the idea was to design and implement a, an a, a, a living area. Or sorry, a small house built with natural, cheap or natural affordable materials, and integrate the house with the garden. So we basically built them a very simple uh, bamboo structure with 
um, recycled materials for the roof, little bit of concrete, uh, adobe, baccarat style in, in, in the building. We put, and then we integrated everything from roof water collection to uh, gray water treatment to, to black water treatment. We, we integrated all that into the garden and on a, on a small area, maybe like 50 square meters, we set, we, we set that family up with a design that could be copied really by any family with, with small or scarce resources. Uh, for a cost of around five thousand dollars, we estimated it, which really is not very much money, you know. And compared to the living conditions for your average Guatemalan family in that kind of um, economic bracket, it was it was a wonderful project to work on. We ended up winning a national award for it. Um, I then went on and collaborated with with the same NGO G Twenty Two on on a project up in in a place called Salama which is, it's known as the Corridor Seco, the, the dry corridor. So we're currently working on the implementation of that, but that actually involves a lot of things you were talking about, um, rotational grazing, agroforestry, silvopasture, which are, there it's a different climate, it's flatter, but it's a lot drier. So you're talking about really, really badly eroded. Desertification is really creeping into this area because they don't get the rains that we get here. Um, so we're implementing that. I'm very, I'm very excited. I'm hopeful about it. The funding has actually tied us up a little bit on that one, um, and so yeah, that those are the kind of prototype models that I'm really like excited to to work on, and hopefully I'll be, I I really enjoy collaborating with other people, you know, like you, who have maybe like a slightly different focus, but a similar like large holistic view. I find people like that always very easy to work with because it's really it's just with this stuff it's really just a it's a case of the penny drops yeah once the penny drops as soon as i talk to you about an idea maybe you haven't heard the details of the idea but you'll get it mm -hmm. you know you uh, see where you're trying to move it or, or what the big picture outcome is correct. yeah so that ability to kind of look out and look at the big picture is and those are the types of people that i want to work with and and and, and i'm excited and interested in working with so Fantastic. Well, like I said, Neil is going to be joining the crew on Abundant Edge and all of his information is going to be up on the website by the time that this uh, podcast airs as well. So if anyone is looking to hire a really qualified consultant for land-based projects uh, and any other sustainability projects anywhere in the world, frankly, um, please check out the website and get in touch with Neil Haggerty. Thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been a real pleasure to talk Thank to you. you. Oliver. I'll mine. see you again in a couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> he and I are actually working on uh, another project for a neighbor just a, a little ways out of here doing some retainment uh, on, a, on a degraded slope of the land and we're, we're figuring out the best native plants to hold the soil in no, there. And... No shortage of degraded slopes. Yeah, exactly. Country. That's <laughs> That's the main we work be, we're doing we for people around these days. We away at that for the rest of our lives, That's I think. true. Okay, well, thanks so much for right, taking thanks, the time. Oliver. Pleasure. I'll see you around. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from contracting, design, consulting, and education. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, where I share updates and pictures on our projects, regenerative living articles, and even free resources and giveaways. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback and emails to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email us directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again on next week's episode.